Okay, good evening. I'd like to continue tonight sharing another sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya and then uh, sharing some more teachings from Lumpa Samedo. And tonight I wanted to share another yeah, really wonderful sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, last night's reading was on the topic of sensuality and the drawbacks of sensuality, and so I wanted also to read a sutta on anger, and um, particularly the yeah, practice of being unprovoked, which is definitely yeah, one of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha as well. So this, simile, this is the, um, the simile of the saw, and is sutta number 21 from the Majjhima Nikaya. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove, Anattapindika's Park. Now on that occasion the Venerable Moliya Paguna was associating overmuch with bhikkhunis. He was associating so much with bhikkhunis that if any bhikkhu spoke dispraise of those bhikkhunis in his presence, he would become angry and displeased and would make a case of it. And if any bhikkhu spoke dispraise of the venerable Moliya Pakuna, Pakuna in those bhikkhunis' presence, they would become angry and displeased and make a case of it. So much was the venerable Moliya Pakuna associating with bhikkhunis. Then a certain bhikkhu went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and told the Blessed One what was taking place. Then the Blessed One addressed a certain bhikkhu thus, Come, Bhikkhu, tell the Bhikkhu Moliya Paguna in my name that the teacher calls him. Yes, Venerable Sir, he replied, and he went to the Venerable Moliya Paguna and told him, The teacher calls you, friend, Paguna. Yes, friend, he replied, and he went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, sat down at one side. The Blessed One asked him, Paguna, is it true that you are associating overmuch with Bhikkhunis? that you are associating so much with bhikkhunis that if any bhikkhu speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you become angry and displeased and make a case of it. And if any bhikkhu speaks dispraise of you in those bhikkhunis' presence, they become angry and displeased and make a case of it. Are you associating so much with bhikkhunis as it seems? Yes, Venerable Sir. Paguna, are you not a clansman who has gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness? Yes, Venerable Sir. Paguna, it is not proper for you, a clansman gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness, to associate overmuch with bhikkhunis. Therefore, if anyone speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. And herein you should train thus. My mind will be unaffected, and I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for his welfare with a mind of loving-kindness, without inner hate. That is how you should train, Paguna. If anyone gives those bhikkhunis a blow with his hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. And herein you should train thus, my mind will be unaffected. If anyone speaks dispraise in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. And herein you should train thus, my mind will be unaffected. If anyone should give you a blow with his hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife, 
you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life, and herein you should train thus, my mind will be unaffected, and I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for his welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. That is how you should train Paguna. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, there was an occasion when the bhikkhus satisfied my mind. Here I address the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, I eat at a single session. By so doing, I am free from illness and affliction, and I enjoy lightness, strength, and a comfortable abiding. Come, bhikkhus, eat at a single session. By so doing, you will be free from illness and affliction, and you will enjoy lightness, strength, and a comfortable abiding. And I had no need to keep on instructing those bhikkhus. I had only to arouse mindfulness in them. Suppose there were a chariot on even ground at the crossroads, harnessed to thoroughbreds, waiting with goad lying ready, so that a skilled trainer, a charioteer of horses to be tamed, might mount it, and taking the reins in his left hand and the goad in his right hand, might drive out and back by any road whenever he likes. So too I had no need to keep on instructing those bhikkhus, I had only to arouse mindfulness in them. Therefore, bhikkhus, abandon what is unwholesome and devote yourselves to wholesome states, for that is how you will come to growth, increase, and fulfillment in this Dhamma and discipline. Suppose there were a big sala tree grove near a village or town, and it was choked with castor oil weeds, and some man would appear desiring its good, welfare, and protection. He would cut down and throw out the crooked saplings that robbed the sap, and he would clean up the interior of the grove and tend the straight, well-formed saplings so that the solitary grove later on would come to growth, increase, and fulfillment. So too, bhikkhus, abandon what is unwholesome and devote yourselves to wholesome states, for that is how you will come to growth, increase, and fulfillment in the stomach and discipline. Formerly, bhikkhus, in the same savati, there was a housewife named Vedihika, and a good report about Mistress Vedihika had spread thus, Mistress Vedihika is gentle, Mistress Vedihika is meek, Mistress Vedihika is peaceful. Now Mistress Vedihika had a maid named Kali, who was clever, nimble, and neat in her work. The maid Kali thought, A good report about my lady has spread thus, Mistress Vedihika is gentle, Mistress Vedihika is meek, Mistress Vedihika is peaceful. How is it now? While she does not show anger, is it nevertheless actually present in her, or is it absent? Or else is it just because my work is neat that my lady shows no anger, though it is actually present in her? Suppose I test my lady. So the maid Kali got up late. Then Mistress Vadihika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What is the matter that you get up so late? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl, yet you get up so late. And she was angry and displeased, and she scowled. Then the maid Kali thought, The fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is actually present in her, not absent. And it is just because my work is neat that my lady shows no anger, though it is actually present in her, not absent. Suppose I test my lady a little more. So the maid Kali got up later in the day. Then Mistress Vedihika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What is the matter that you get up later in the day? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl, yet you get up later in the day. 
and she was angry and displeased, and she spoke words of displeasure. Then the maid Kali thought, the fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is actually present in her, not absent, and it is just because my work is neat that my lady shows no anger, though it is actually present in her, not absent. Suppose I test my lady a little more. So the maid Kali got up still later in the day. Then Mistress Vadihika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What is the matter that you get up still later in the day? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl. Yet you get up still later in the day. And she was angry and displeased, and she took a rolling pin, gave her a blow on the head, and cut her head. Then the maid Kali, with blood running from her cut head, denounced her mistress to the neighbors. See, ladies, the gentle ladies work. See, ladies, the meek ladies work. See, ladies, the peaceful ladies work. How can she become angry and displeased with her only maid for getting up late? How can she take a rolling pin, give her a blow on the head, and cut her head? Then later on a bad report about Mistress Vadihika spread thus. Mistress Vadihika is rough. Mistress Vadihika is violent. Mistress Vadihika is merciless. So too, because some bhikkhu is extremely gentle, extremely meek, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch him that it can be understood whether that bhikkhu is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. I do not call a bhikkhu easy to admonish who is easy to admonish and makes himself easy to admonish only for the sake of getting robes, alms food, a resting place, and medicinal requisites. Why is that? Because that bhikkhu is not easy to admonish nor makes himself easy to admonish when he gets no robes, alms food, resting place, and medicinal requisites. But when a bhikkhu is easy to admonish and makes himself easy to admonish because he honors, respects, and reveres the Dhamma, him I call easy to admonish. Therefore, bhikkhus, you should train thus. We shall be easy to admonish and make ourselves easy to admonish because we honor, respect, and revere the Dhamma. That is how you should train bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate. When others address you, their speech may be timely or untimely. When others address you, their speech may be true or untrue. When others address you, their speech may be gentle or harsh. When others address you, their speech may be connected with good or with harm. When others address you, their speech may be spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate. Herein, bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness. And starting with him, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train because because suppose a man came with a hoe and a basket and said, I shall make this great earth to be without earth. He would dig here and there, strew the soil here and there, spit here and there, and urinate here and there, saying, 
be without earth, be without earth. What do you think, Bhikkhus? Could that man make this great earth to be without earth? No, Venerable Sir. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and immeasurable. It is not easy to make it be without earth. Eventually, the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So too, Bhikkhus, there are these five courses of speech. And he repeats the previous teaching. Herein, Bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. And starting with him, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind similar to the earth, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, suppose a man came with crimson, turmeric, indigo, or carmine, and said, I shall draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space. What do you think, bhikkhus? Could that man draw pictures and make pictures appear on empty space? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because empty space is formless and non-manifestive. It is not easy to draw pictures there or make pictures appear there. Eventually, the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So too, bhikkhus, there are these five courses of speech. Repeats of the previous teaching. Herein, bhikkhus, you should train thus, our minds will remain unaffected. We shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind similar to empty space, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train, because Bhikkhus, suppose a man came with a blazing grass torch and said, I shall heat up and burn away the river Ganges with this blazing grass torch. What do you think, Bhikkhus? Could that man heat up and burn away the river Ganges with that blazing grass torch? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because the river Ganges is deep and immense. It is not easy to heat it up or burn it away with a blazing grass torch. Eventually the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So too, because there are these five courses of speech. Repeats the previous teaching. Herein, because you should train thus, our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind similar to the river Ganges, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, suppose there were a catskin bag that was rubbed, well rubbed, thoroughly well rubbed, soft, silky, rid of rustling, rid of crackling, and a man came with a stick or a potsherd and said, There is this catskin bag that is rubbed, rid of rustling, rid of crackling. I shall make it rustle and crackle. What do you think, Bhikkhus? Could that man make it rustle or crackle with the stick or the potsherd? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because that catskin bag being rubbed is rid of rustling, rid, rid of crackling. It is not easy to make it rustle or crackle with the stick or the potsherd. Eventually the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So too, because there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate. When others address you, their speech may be timely or untimely. When others address you, their speech may be true or untrue, 
When others address you, their speech may be gentle or harsh. When others address you, their speech may be connected with good or with harm. When others address you, their speech may be spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with inner hate. Herein, bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. We shall abide pervading that person with a mind imbued with loving kindness, and starting with him, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind similar to a catskin bag, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train, bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, even if bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teaching. Herein, bhikkhus, you should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected, and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. We shall abide pervading them with a mind imbued with loving kindness, and starting with them, we shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That is how you should train, bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, if you keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind, do you see any course of speech, trivial or gross, that you could not endure? No, venerable sir. Therefore, bhikkhus, you should keep this advice on the simile of the saw constantly in mind. That will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Okay, does anyone have any comments or questions? Just to note that, uh, thank you for reading the whole sutta. There's a lot of hidden gems there. So. Like that sutta, I would normally remember the simile of the saw part at the very end, but there's the way the sutta begins and the rest of the sutta is also very pertinent, very good. Thank you. Just a broad question, I guess. Um, to that to that point, Tajan, I feel like there's so many vignettes and stories within that that are all calling out different facets or... Um, all different kinds of conditions in which we should remain with that heart. And um, I'm just wondering if there's anything in particular to be called out, you know, so there's a lot of vignettes in there and I think there's different angles. And so anything that you could explicitly state about those different ones. I just, uh, Ajahn Kurama might have something as well, but for me it's the, here a bhikkhu might be extremely wonderful and joyful, you know, very gentle and modest and then until he's criticized you know, or until, you know, until a disagreeable state arises and then you see so that that I love when the Buddha gives those types of teachings that when one is criticized one's true state is known or when one re, one experiences hardship one's true qualities one's true inner qualities are known so I, I just really appreciate those types of teachings yeah just um uh, yeah, the, the the sneakiness of those underlying tendencies and what it takes to bring them out is is that is important to notice, and also that you know 
the fact that you may have all sorts of you know tendencies that are still uh, present even uh, because they just aren't, aren't challenged it doesn't mean that in any way of course that uh, one shouldn't still restrain oneself you know because we that's what the precepts are all about about speech and action is to kind of start from the outside and go in um, so that yeah th these tendencies may still still be there but you know the first layer of protection for all of us you know in, including oneself is that are those precepts against acting on it and that that's what really gives you the opportunity to see them you know if you can't just blurt it out then you kind of really see that uh, oh what's the energy behind that and gives you the opportunity to to address it thank you and i particularly like the example i can't remember exactly how it's worded but can you basically paint in air however he says like when this when it's not there uh, yeah. thank you um, i'm sorry if maybe i didn't quite understand but it feels like it's like abandoning unwholesome states and cultivate wholesome states or and then I also I mean it's, I also talk about this with Ajahn Yaniko the other day like but actually if those states of anger arises and we can't actually abandon them immediately then I mean I, I'm not sure if this would refer to that as well but just how how would you reflect on that? Yeah, I could speak to that a bit. As uh, I think what Ajahn Kurodama just said as well, I could echo that. That uh, it's it's about the mental states arise, but we're not acting on them. So, like with Lady Videha, she ends up picking up a rolling pin and hitting her maid over the head. So you can't control. So it's gone out into action. So so like. Uh, Yes, we will still have greed and anger and irritation and frustration arise in the mind, but then because of the precepts, we're not acting on it. So, uh, so that is, uh, that is at least something, I mean, the simile, the saw, the ultimate level is to when the mind of anger doesn't arise, even if your limbs being, you know, you're being cut, you're being, uh, physically assaulted or something then, but that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate level of the Buddha's teaching. But it, for us, at least, at least we're not acting on those states, so that uh, we're, you know, experiencing really strong frustration or irritation or anger towards somebody, and we don't. Uh, we might be able to make note of that, but we're. I don't. It's very very rare to see somebody actually attack somebody else in a monastery. It has happened, but uh, not very often. <laughs> Hasn't happened here. Yeah, one other uh, uh, thought that just popped into my mind too, and it, it's I still haven't completely 100% reconciled um, the Buddha's teaching, just as we've received it uh, with the simile that saw and Ajahn Chah's uh, encounter with the um, uh, the uh, palm reader who who looked at his palm. This was after you know. Presumably, um, after his li complete liberation, and looked at his palm and said, Ooh, Lung Pa, you have a lot of anger. And his response was, Yes, but I don't use it or I don't pick it up. And I can't remember exactly which of those two. Um, and so, in a way, he was saying, You know, 
there is this possibility that that, that kind of mind state manifests in some way, but um, my, the way I interpret it is, is that, you know, it's so fleeting and so fast that he never picks it up in any way. There's no clinging, there's no grasping. So that as a, you know, like a, a perceptual pattern, um, it arises, but it's not like uh, anything that, you know, doesn't uh, pass away immediately. Um, so that there's a, a tendency in there. Uh, just as like one might feel a pain in the body, one can feel a, a, a painful mental kind of thing, but not pick it up. It's not part of a reaction process of any kind whatsoever, even, even mentally, you know, it's sort of like a, a pattern that arises, but it's not anything that's real, and it's seen as not anything that's real. All right. Uh, maybe now we can move on to uh, another teaching of Lumpal Samedo, and uh, I found this really nice, uh, a really nice talk that Lumpal Samedo gave on uh, living in community and also finding the right, the right balance in our effort and practice. And I probably won't be able to read all of it, but I'll just uh, just read a little bit of it. And this is also from Volume One of the Collected Teachings of Lumpasamido. Okay, and this talk is called "Innocence is Corruptible, Wisdom is Incorruptible." In our practice, we need to learn what right effort is, in contrast to just willpower. In Thailand, the attitude is always to sleep little, speak little, eat little. This is quite a strong influence on one's mind. It sets in motion the idea of pushing and striving, but it also tends to create a kind of mental state that is very suppressive. One isn't really aware of what one is doing. Many people become so tired and exhausted that their reflective capacities no longer operate. In a group, there's also a lot of pressure to conform and keep up. People don't always notice and observe the effect of these things. At Amaravati, I once gave a very strict retreat, getting up at three in the morning, dismissing everyone at 11 at night, and so forth. The results of that retreat were not very good, actually. Some of the people were very diligent at doing all that, but others just couldn't keep up with it. So then I considered, what are we in this for anyway? What is the purpose of what we're doing? A lot of illness comes from that suppressive tendency just to hold everything down and drive oneself, or perhaps try to keep up with the very strong and healthy people. One might consider that a, that a weakness, but in England I have found it much more helpful not to emphasize trying to become a super diligent kind of monk, or to think that strictness is the way that everything should be. The mind tends to be very much impressed by things like asceticism and the use of willpower. But I remember that in my early years, when I was a samanera, I had the most insight when I had enough rest and my mind and body were relaxed. I had some powerful insights when I wasn't just pushing and striving against sleepiness or trying to keep up with others. In the Western world, the people who commit themselves to monastic life are usually already quite determined in their own way, so one is not carrying a lot of dead weight, having to teach monks who are just following a tradition as part of a cultural pattern. This is, of course, a lovely thing to have people in whom one can have confidence so that they can begin to trust and motivate themselves. 
We need to learn how to motivate ourselves rather than depend on someone else to drive and push us. I notice when we're put in teaching or leadership positions, we tend to feel a sense of insecurity. So often we become almost militaristic. This is quite common. I've seen it in England with monks who are in the position of being an abbot for the first time. It's almost like sitting over people and forcing them to conform. But when contemplated, the results are not terribly impressive. The beauty of the holy life doesn't lie in driving people. Instead, we encourage people to rise up to things and learn how to put effort into what they're doing. We learn from experience what seems to be most helpful and of value. There is no need to make an absolute position that one has to do things a certain way. The whole purpose of contemplation and reflection is to observe the results of what we do. I think we're quite used to employing willpower alone as a compulsive and obsessive tendency of the mind. We hold things back, we force and drive ourselves. Notice that the Western mentality always has the idea we should be doing or developing something. It's very hard for us just to sit around and not feel guilty about it. There's always this compulsion to do something, something more, get better or get rid of some flaw, weakness, or bad habit. What I'm saying is for reflection. It's not meant to do anything other than encourage us all to look at what's compelling us to do what we're doing. So as we begin to look at our motivations, what willpower is, we become aware of the compulsive tendencies of our mind. In a community, there is a lot of intimidation. There are always those who sit straighter and are always on time, those who never nod and always eat little, those we call the diligent ones. And then there's always somebody in the community who can't do any of it very well, ranging from those who try desperately to conform and live up to an image to those who just try to do the best they can. There's a tendency to look at somebody else and copy, idealize and emulate. Then there are feelings of guilt, remorse or inferiority regarding the fact that we might not be able to live up to what we think the best ones can do. All this is to be witnessed and observed. Community life can be just mass conformity, or it can be a very skillful way of understanding the nature of things. Nobody wants to live in a community for very long under a lot of pressure, feeling intimidated and put upon by others so that life becomes very dull or despairing. What appealed to me about Vinaya, discipline, was that it wasn't asceticism, but a reasonable way to live a life. Personally, I used to like to do ascetic practices and be very strict, but I realized that one can only do those things for periods of time, not indefinitely. I didn't really want to have to do all that as a way of life or feel obliged always to operate on that level. I felt that the Buddha had meant monastic life to be something simple and easy, relaxed and peaceful, rather than harsh and ascetic. In England, we've had to take care of sick people. Some monks have very poor health, various back problems, knee problems, and endless ailments calling for consideration as to how to work through them, not only by the monks with their particular health problems themselves, but also by the community as a whole. Do we want just a community of healthy and tough young men, or can a community perhaps also include and open up to a wider range of ages, abilities, and levels of health? I know that for a lot of young men, it's very important to prove they are tough and can practice austerity. This is also to be recognized that we might be motivated by the masculine need for rites of passage into the adult male world. Nevertheless, it, it is good to get to know our limits. What is it like to go without sleep or food? 
If we want to test ourselves, that's fair enough. It's good practice, actually. But we each have to know our limits. Some of us have to learn how to operate within the limits of poor health, having little physical reserve and a weak constitution. We need to apply mindfulness and wisdom when the body is not healthy and needs quite frequent rest or certain kinds of nourishment. One of the monks has so much tension all the time that he's been extremely constipated for most of his monastic life. These, these constipation problems arise because of the tension of driving and willing oneself. Learning how to practice is about finding a balance, finding out when to, when to take it easy and when to tighten things up. This is something each one of us has to really observe in ourselves and in the community. We can be very idealistic, thinking what a good monk should be like, wearing rag robes, eating only what is offered, able to live in whatever place is given, surviving with just fermented urine for medicine, taking his ideal from our basic reflections, the ideal of not sleeping very much, not eating very much, not speaking very much. But if we attach to those ideals without understanding what we're doing, the result is that we lose our sense of humor and become very tense. All kinds of unpleasant results can occur. Maybe we can keep it up for a while, but then we find ourselves falling apart. When the supportive conditions for such a practice aren't there, we lose our momentum. By observing this, we can begin to see how to relax, how to apply more effort, and how to let go. We learn when to push ourselves and create energy, but without adopting or holding on to an idealistic position of how things should be permanently. And in quotes, good practice is being strict all the time. If we believe so firmly in our high ideals, we may quite suddenly feel despair. Many people leave because they cannot stand the idea of living in that way while always feeling a sense of failure with regard to it. When I talk about reflection, I mean just looking at what's driving us, what kind of ideals we have. It's not that we shouldn't have ideals, but what are our expectations and what are the results of our life so far? What are we attached to and holding on to? What are the causes and results of any action? This is a means of self-knowledge, of looking into the way things are. We don't judge that we shouldn't be strict or push ourselves. I'm not taking a position for or against those things but I emphasize the need to recognize what we are actually doing and its result. Practice is all about what we're actually doing. We're not just trying to live up to an ideal of what a good, good monk should be, but observing the results of what we're doing. What would good results be? Well, if we're still suffering and full of anxiety, doubt, stress, fear and dullness, caught in restlessness, jealousy, envy, anger, greed, and all that, then we're obviously doing something not quite right. Maybe we're trying to purify ourselves, getting rid of our defilements, killing our kilesas, making ourselves into something else and trying to annihilate the bad habits. Maybe we want to prove ourselves or win approval from others, or maybe we're trying to be what we think we should be. But anything that comes from self-view will always take us to some kind of negative result and despair. They go hand in hand. If we have a sense of self, we'll also have disillusionment and a sense of despair. When we read Ajahn Man's biography, what does that do to us? People think they would really like to be like Ajahn Man and do all the things that he did. We seem to forget that this is an idealized biography of a great monk. What actually is the mental state when we want to become like that, 
wanting to become something or thinking we have to do all those things in order to become enlightened. This is a drawback of biographies. To be honest, if I were to write my biography, there are a lot of things I just wouldn't tell you. I'd want to write about the time when I nearly died under a tin roof with little flies going up my nose, my ears, my mouth, the terrible food, the heat, the infection, and the utter despair. But then I roused myself to sit up straight and suddenly I saw the light. That's a very inspiring story. What I would write in my biography would be things on that level, interesting, inspiring examples of practice. But there are a lot of things I think others wouldn't be interested in. They are so ordinary and boring. I wouldn't want to fill page after page with the monotony of monastic life that we experience most of the time in this form. I take the choice bits, the supreme challenges, and maybe the failures and successes of this life. With them, I might create a very fascinating biography. Don't get me wrong, I'm not condemning the biography of Ajahn Man either, but we can observe how we can idealize monasticism and try to live up to very high standards of asceticism and practice, not realizing what we're actually doing because there's no understanding of what's motivating us and what we're grasping. One problem that arises when there is any ideal set form is that some seem to fit into it more than others. Those who feel they don't quite fit into the ideal form might draw the conclusion that this isn't a suitable life for them. Maybe some of us can't chant very well, can't recite the Padimokha, and not everyone can be a gifted, charismatic teacher. Maybe we never learn to be really fluent in Thai or be charming and get all the praise. Of course, it's always nice to be appreciated, but you may be the old sour grapes type of monk who criticizes the one who chants well and never makes a mistake in the Padimokha or the one who speaks perfect Thai and gets all the praise. If we're being negative, we can regard these things as superficial and not the practice. We can look down on the more popular monks, but that's another delusion, isn't it? We each have our own particular character to live with. This life isn't meant for just one particular kind of character, suitable only for some and not for others. We always have to keep in mind that the priority of this life is to see the Dhamma here and now. It's not our purpose to become teachers, missionaries, or popular and charismatic figures, or to be able to do everything perfectly well, have a lot of disciples, have many monks, and set up branch monasteries. All of this is not what we're here for. At least that's not what I'm here for. If these things happen, it's all right. One is willing to encourage and try to create suitable situations for teaching, practicing, and listening to Dhamma. But the priority always has to be seeing the Dhamma in the present moment not being deluded and pushing aside the truth of the way it is now because we are caught up in a mission or something important on the worldly plane. In my position, for example, people have all kinds of expectations of me. Sometimes I used to find that really unbearable and began to feel a lot of resentment about it, but the priority was always to observe the way things were in the present moment. If I followed this resentment, of course I'd then suffer, but through just looking at that particular thing, or any other thing, the tendency to create a problem about them dropped away. More and more I found confidence, space, and strength arising, and was able to be present here and now without making comments, neither being pulled in nor intimidated, nor wanting to please and be an impeccable monk who fulfilled other people's expectations. Thus we keep learning from life's experiences. My reflection in daily life is always, this is the way it is, it's like this. If people leave, monks disrobe, 
Anagarikas run away or nuns fall in love with swamis, we might feel quite disappointed. Life goes up and down. For instance, a monk for whom we had great expectations may suddenly leave. But instead of creating a problem about that, we remember the practice is about here and now, not about personalities, the expectations we have, the way we might be disappointed about somebody or the hurt feelings. They're just part of our human experience. They can always be seen here and now as Dhamma. All that arises ceases. That is the way things are. We don't try to make ourselves into unfeeling, indifferent people to the point where we don't care what anybody thinks, so that if everybody left, it wouldn't mean anything to us. The world could fall apart, but we'd be totally indifferent, no longer sensitive and not feeling anything at all. Sometimes we may imagine that's what an arahant is like. No matter what's happening, he's completely indifferent and unimpressed. But is that really the way it is? From my experience, the way it is is that is that this is a very sensitive world. Planetary life, consciousness, and the human form, the whole realm is one of great sensitivity, feeling, emotion, and even psychic phenomena. The reflection that all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing and is not self isn't a dismissal of that or an insensitivity to the way it is, to its power or quality. It's the ability to be patient, to bear, to bear with the vicissitudes of life, and learn from them. The quality of things can vary. Some can be very important and urgent. Others might be totally trivial, silly and idiotic. In daily life, some experiences have the quality of being very important, but a lot of daily life experiences are quite trivial and foolish. Seeing that all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing isn't dismissing the quality of anything, but giving that quality a perspective by seeing things in the perspective of impermanence, rather than judging and paying attention only to the important ones and not bothering with the trivial ones, we begin to open to the existence of weakness, cowardice, wishy-washiness, and wimpiness. They are all seen as what arises ceases, instead of judging such states as being horrible, bad, and something we don't want. We're willing to observe and note that these states are impermanent, and so are the big, serious, grand, and urgent ones. Okay, so we're just about out of time, so I think I'll uh, just finish there for this evening. Are there any uh, comments or questions that people have? I just thought you could, uh, you know, going back to the simile of the Saw Sutta, there was that one comment that even if a, you know, he's telling the monk who is overly associating with the bhikkhunis that. Uh, even if a bhikkhuni is being assaulted with a knife in front of you, your mind should remain indifferent. I thought it's kind of like Lopor Sumedho's a little bit speaking to that that teaching. Because uh, we could easily get that idea that, oh, yeah, I should just have a state of mental blankness and remain indifferent if, even if somebody's being assaulted or even killed in front of me. But that's uh, I don't think that's what the Buddha's intending. He's talking about not giving rise to a mind of anger, but not that you would just stand there and watch or just kind of <laughs> remain totally blank in, in such situations. I think it really comes back to skillful response. I think of Lung Paliam like this as well. There'd be a lot of very difficult issues that would come onto his plate and he would actually deal with them. He wouldn't just kind of uh, not react or not do anything. He, he would actually respond very skillfully, but it really depended on the situation.
Okay, thank you.